If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We felt that uh, the Canadian health transfer was more than just symbolic. It was uh, meaningful to our budget so that we can deliver the health care that people need, whether it's mental health issues, whether it's uh, care for seniors. The, the, the list is long. Uh, wait times, uh, diagnostic <coughs> equipment, all of those issues are languishing while we have a discussion about taking us in a direction that many of us are already on. That, so I, it wasn't a negative. I, wouldn't, I, I think I'm speaking for everyone when I say we, we were welcoming a discussion about a national pharmacare plan, but those of us who already have significant plans would prefer uh, that we first and foremost get back to a, a, a more equitable distribution of resources to deliver health care broadly across, across the piece. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Welcome to another podcast. That's Premier John Horgan speaking at a Premier's conference in Toronto the other day, Rob, and talking about healthcare funding there. And it all gets down to kind of pharmacare. Is talk about a national pharmacare program, which would be popular for a lot of people, I, I imagine, but that's expensive. Where's the money going to come from? Yeah, I, I, pharmacare is one of those things where... Uh, like it seems super complicated. And when we talk about it, we're like, oh God, you know, people start zoning out. What does pharmacare mean? But if you kind of boil it down, and I was I wrote about this this week, so I read this report that the government had done on pharmacare. It's very interesting. So right now you are covered by MSP, um, you know, as kind of your base healthcare coverage in Canada. But depending on your income level and whether you have private insurance from your employer on top of that, when you go to get your prescription filled, yeah. You may end up paying for some or all or part of that prescription, right. uh, and that can add up for you. And and the idea behind a national pharmacare plan is that if the federal government creates a national drug program that will save a whole bunch of money because as a country buying drugs, the government will have a lot more purchasing power to get better deals, you will not have to pay as much for your prescription drugs. So the proposal is that if the government was to enact this, you would pay as little as $2.00 as the co-payment for a, a generic drug and as much as $5 for other types of drugs and a maximum of $100 a year for your drugs. So wow. for a lot of people who are paying for their prescriptions, even with a private plan, you might end up having to pay 20, 30 bucks on your prescription, depending on what it is. This program would dramatically change that. And as you mentioned, it's super expensive. So yeah. by the time the thing is proposed to get off the ground, fully running in 2027, it's <laughs> a $15 billion program. And the, the provinces are watching this. And what, one of the discussions at this premier's meeting this week in, in Toronto was, okay, all right, so the federal government has promised pharmacare. Trudeau promises in the election campaign. Trudeau promised it. Yeah. The Jagmeet Singh promised it in yeah. the federal election. How are they going to pay for it? And are they going to dump a bunch of costs onto us as provinces? Because right. remember, provinces are the ones who 
basically foot the major bill for healthcare. We spend 20 some odd billion dollars a year on healthcare in British Columbia. Yeah. Ottawa chips in five billion, five and a half billion in a health transfer. And, but the bulk of it are the provinces and they're worried, they're watching this proposal, they're thinking we like the idea, but Ottawa is going to screw us on this somehow. They're going to give us money with conditions. They're going to redefine things so that we get downloaded with costs. We don't want that. And in fact, what the provinces came out with uh, from this meeting is they actually want more health care funding through what are called health care transfers from Ottawa before we get to pharmacare. Show me the money. Show me the money. Yeah. So right now, Ottawa gives around 3% increase to health funding a year, yeah. and the provinces want 5.2%, which would add millions of dollars to their budgets. They're saying, look, we got wait times, we got seniors, we have all sorts of pressures uh, on our health care system. We want that money from Ottawa before you come around and hit us with this big, crazy, shiny new pharmacare program that may or may not be funded, that may end up just kind of hooping us on our own budgets, which is... I think it's kind of interesting because a pharmacare program is straight up pure New Democrat uh, politics. You know, like the New Democrats love the idea of a giant national drug program. And yet we have a New Democrat government here that is watching this unfold and saying, um, you know, I'm not sure we want it right now yeah. until you get more money here. It's going to depend on how you propose it. And it's it's the, dynam the dynamic between Ottawa and the provinces on money and I think a lot of people might like a pharmacare program, sure. but it's going to all depend on how Ottawa goes forward with it. Well, I think Horgan and the other premiers are shrewd to put that on the table and to make it very clear and ask questions about where's the money going to come from this and how is it going to work? Because quite often these are great talking points and a, and a terrific sounding promise during an election campaign. And certainly that's what Trudeau wanted to get out of it. This sounded awesome on the campaign trail. And I remember him being pressed on, well, how would this be paid for? And he would say, well, you know, it depends on what we'd have to take a look at provincial programs and what provinces are offering now. As soon as you hear that, you know that the provinces are going to have to be on high alert for how this is going to be paid for. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the, of the uh, $10 a day childcare right. that the NDP promised here. Sounds like an awesome deliverable, right, during an election campaign. Then you get into power and it's suddenly like, yeah, you know, we actually can't afford to pay for this. So we're going to take little baby steps first to try and make it look like we're keeping our promise on it, right? Oh, yeah. And pharmacare is similar to that because yeah. the baby steps go way out to 2027. Although the proposal is that within a few years, you cover most of the generic base level drugs in the program. You get it up and running. And then the hope is that if you save money by going after the big pharmaceutical companies. If Canada as a whole can go up and say, you know what, our country is buying this drug, give us a deal instead of all the different provinces, maybe you get billions back in savings that you can throw into the system. But, you know, it, it, it'll be a fascinating program to watch how it rolls out because it's, as you mentioned, it's a great, I think, eye catcher, mm -hmm. but it's a tough one to implement. So that was one of the topics at the Premier's Conference this week. The other one, Smitty, and you've written about this in the past, is the issue of liquefied natural gas and saving the environment and how those two yeah. things go together. And this was an old talking point that you and I used to cover when Premier Christy Clark and the Liberal government were in power. The idea that if we take our natural gas from BC, we liquefy it, we export it to a country like China that is using coal-powered uh, power plants to generate its electricity, we deserve credit, some type of international pollution credit for helping China get off dirty coal with cleaner natural gas. And you covered it at the time when Christy Clark was saying this. I think her quote was something like, we're, we're doing something good for the world, or the world should be thankful for this. 
And what was the reaction from New Democrats at well, the this time? Is, this is one of those classic kind of political sort of topsy-turvy ones, and it, it depends on if you're in power and you're in opposition. And when Christy Clark was in power and she was premier, and you remember how she won that historic upset election back in 2013 when she was way behind in the polls, one of the, and she pulled off that big upset win. One of the reasons that she won was she had this big, bold promise about LNG and that we are going to have an LNG industry that's going to get up and running and be absolutely booming. And British Columbia is going to get rich off it. The, the streets would be paved with gold. Remember, she was saying, like, we maybe even we'd eliminate the provincial sales tax. She was talking, right. it's gonna, sounded great. we're going to wait, make so much money. And the NDP were just pitiless in their kind of attacks on it, saying, like, this is just fantasy stuff. It's not going to happen. It's it's pixie dust. I think uh, someone famously called it. Was it Heyman called it the pixie dust, Maybe or was it Carol know. James? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, they just kept saying it was terrible. And one of the things that they centered on was Clark's argument that you just outlined that developing liquefied natural gas in British Columbia would actually be good for the planet because a lot of people were saying, well, wait a minute, what about our greenhouse gas productions and global warming and climate change? And she says, no, don't worry about that. Because actually, this is going to be good, because if we can sell this stuff to China, and it means they burn less coal, because they're bringing on hundreds of coal-fired power plants over there, this stuff burns less. You can produce more units of energy with less carbon emissions than you do with coal. It's cleaner burning fuel. So we're actually going to be ahead of the game, and we're actually going to save the planet, because if we didn't sell them this stuff, they'd burn more coal, so it'd be worse for the planet. And the NDP were just ridiculed that at every opportunity. Uh, and I remember talking to John Horrigan, uh, Michelle Mongal, who is now the NDP energy minister, George Heyman, now the NDP environment minister, just mocking Christy Clark for this claim. And now, okay, now the tables are turned, right? Now we're so what are the, what are the, what's Horrigan saying now? Now we're watching the premier's press conference in Ontario where Jason Kenney, the Alberta Premier, and John Horgan, the BC Premier, are sitting there, two kind of mortal enemies in recent political history. Yeah. And the only thing they can unite on in this press conference is a long kind of back and forth where they talk about how great LNG is. And John Horgan says, we should get credit for exporting LNG to places like China to get them off of thermal coal. Right. That's a clean so burning fuel. Thing. It's the exact same argument that yeah. the New Democrats used to mock Christy Clark right. for. Right. And it's the only issue that can bring Jason Kenney and John Horgan together because there's there are natural gas reserves in Alberta. This is an issue of Alberta getting, you know, product to market, yada, yada, yada. And of course, we have a huge LNG project underway in BC. $40 billion uh, plant near Kitimat. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just amazing to watch the premiers of Alberta and BC unite behind an argument that they used to mock the previous liberal government in BC for. But I guess that's politics. And yeah. I guess when you're Alberta and BC, you're looking for any common ground you can get. But it's, you know, when you ask New Democrats about this and you say, okay, come on, this is like pure hypocrisy. Yeah. They say, well, you know, keep in mind, we do have a, cl a climate plan called Clean BC. Right. And within this climate plan, we've got targets and those targets take into account LNG. And, right. and it doesn't include, we're not claiming we need any credit from from improving the world in this plan. Our plan will function whether we get that credit or not internationally. It doesn't exist right now. We're not counting on it. We've got a climate plan that exists. We're just saying it would be great if on top of that, we could get credit for saving the world. So I guess the New Democrats are saying, look, we gotta, we're got we just asking for this. We're not, we're not, you know, 
taking credit for it yet, but we would like to. And even if we don't get it, we still have a plan without it. It drives the liberals crazy because they are still seething about all these attacks the NDP launched against them. You and I were talking off air about uh, when the liberals are in power, remember Gordon, they brought Gordon Wilson in, the former liberal leader, and he was their LNG advocate. And he went around the province making speeches, uh, propping up Christy Clark and saying, you know, this LNG is going to be fantastic. And one of the things he frequently made the same argument that it's going to be good for the planet because we'll sell it to China. And he had one line where he said, this is actually going to save hundreds of lives. Like there will be hundreds of lives of people, actual human beings who will be alive in China because of our LNG, because they're going to breathe less smog over there. So we're going to save all these lives. And the NDP just went ballistic over that, saying, like, you can't say that. This is not true. This is still a fossil fuel. This is still going to be causing climate change. And now here we are, you know, the shoe's on the other foot, and they're using the same talking points. One of the, one of the things the NDP used to kind of defend themselves on this accusation of hypocrisy on it is the point you just made. They're saying, like, well, we're going to do it cleaner mm-hmm. than what the liberals would have done. You know, we brought in tougher restrictions on LNG. So our LNG is actually going to be cleaner than what the liberals would have done. Well, that's, so that's why we're allowed to brag about it. That they are not, they partly were. that's because the New Democrats are giving $6 billion in extra tax breaks yeah, to the LNG yeah. industry that the liberals hadn't even envisioned. Ooh. So, so uh, another you, one, another point of hypocrisy, right? Remember how they went ballistic over that too? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they accused the liberals of giving away the store to LNG. LNG is one of those files where if you chart the, the politician speaking points on it from say, you know, eight or nine years ago to today, yeah. Everybody uh, on the New Democrat side has flip-flopped on this issue. Yep. And the New, the New Democrats fired Gordon Wilson when yes. they came into government. They said, we don't need an LNG advocate. And it's true, they don't, because John Horgan is the LNG advocate oh, sure. for the New Democrats. He yeah. wanders the province talking about how great it is. So why have an extra job here? Uh, it, but it's uh, I was stunned when I watched the press conference because I thought, man... You know, like sometimes you feel like you're going crazy covering things down here because you're thinking, I remember who used to say that. And I remember the guy who used to criticize that. And now all the rules are changed. And here they are. It's like Groundhog Day. Yeah. You, know, um, you just hear the same thing over and over again. It's just the sort of the names and parties have switched around. So not much else from that premier's uh, press conference. Uh, you know, it was just uh, another kind of gathering that these premiers do. Uh, But back here home in British Columbia, we are still dealing, and you are still writing, Smitty, about what I thought was kind of a fascinating column, the last stand of the taxi industry when it comes to ride-hailing. And this ride-hailing file, my God, it's been going on forever, super long, super complicated. The only thing you really need to know is we're almost there. We are on the verge of finally the ride-hailing companies getting their licenses, being able to operate, and you can see the taxi sector pulling the emergency brake, (laughs) <laughs> tossing a couple Hail Mary passes down the field, trying their last-minute maneuvers to stop this. What are they up to, Smitty? Well, I got, I've gotten tons of columns out of this. This, is, this has been great. I've gotten more columns out of this than... You're hoping it never ends, right? Well, yeah, keep it going. Keep it going. Now, what, what's going on is the, the government has said LNGs... Or LNG. Ride-hailing is coming to BC. LNGs coming, too. But ride-hailing is finally coming to British Columbia. Never mind that we're supposed to have it last Christmas, and they also said we'd have it the Christmas before that. We're supposed to get it this Christmas. Well, Christmas is only, what, a couple of weeks away? Mm -hmm. And I doubt we're going to get it before Christmas this year either. But the government keeps saying it's coming. And 
all the Ellen or all the I almost said it again. All the ride hailing companies. We should have LNG powered ride hailing <laughs> companies. That would be great. We could combine it into one file. Yeah. Uh, all the ride hailing companies have applied for an operating license, and the board that is in charge of approving that is called the BC Passenger Transportation Board, which is appointed by the Horgan Cabinet, but it operates independent of government. They are now looking at these applications and they say that by the end of this year, they will announce decisions on whether any of these companies will be licensed, including the two big multinational ride-hailing giants, Uber and Lyft. These are the two top enemies of the taxi companies. They want to keep Uber and Lyft out. So the latest kind of maneuver by the taxi companies to try and keep these companies out of Vancouver and out of BC is they have asked this board to not license Uber and Lyft because they treat their drivers unfairly and are breaking BC labor code laws. And Uber and Lyft have both been hit with a complaint at the BC Labor Relations Board, another government board, uh, complaining that they've broken BC labor laws. That, that complaint was filed by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, which is a big union in Canada, private sector union. And the taxi companies are saying, while that fight is going on, you should refuse to license these two companies and allow them to operate. And that fight has been kind of outlined in a series of letters and stuff that I got a hold of. And it's like you said, it's kind of a bit of a Hail Mary pass to try and keep the ride hailing companies out of out of B.C., it's going to be interesting to see what happens here because this board, when you talk to this passenger transportation board and say, what do you, what's going on? Are you going to refuse to license Uber and Lyft now? They won't comment. All they will say is, just wait, We're, we'll have a decision soon. That's all they will say. So we'll see. Another thing that's going on is that the taxi companies are really putting a lot of pressure on this board to bring in caps on the maximum number of ride hailing vehicles allowed to operate. If you recall earlier, back in August, the board said, we're going to allow this industry to start up and we're going to license these companies and it'll be unlimited. So you'll be able to put as many vehicles on the street as you want. And the taxi companies are furious over that. And so is the government. The government's very worried about that too. And the taxi companies are now saying, no, 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 you got to change this now. You got to bring in these limits because otherwise it's going to be Carmageddon. You know, it's going to be so many ride hailing vehicles on the street, it's going to be traffic gridlock. So please, please, please bring in these limits. And that's going to be interesting to see because I got a feeling they might, they might bring in these limits. They might do a little last second flip flop here and bring in some caps on the number of vehicles allowed on the street. We'll see. See, that would be bad in my opinion, not necessarily because of the caps issue, but because this is supposed to be an independent body, the Passenger Transportation Board, free of political interference. And they are just getting squeezed by the powerful taxi association. One of the and by the government. And too. by the government. One of the reasons the government punted this issue off to the independent board is so that we wouldn't have the political pressure on MLAs from the taxi lobby and from the ride hailing lobby to try and get favoritism in the rules. And instead, we've got this poor little passenger transportation board out there in the middle of a just a firestorm. And they may or may not be flip-flopping on their decisions. The, the argument that they originally had is, we're not going to put any caps on ride-hailing companies. We're going to collect data. And then a year from now, we're going to analyze the data. And Review. then we're going to decide what kind of caps, because we have no idea. what We would just arbitrarily be picking numbers out of the air. So if they flip-flop on that, because the taxi association's upset, 
I kind of, I mean, that's a worrying trend uh, in what's supposed to be an independent process. Yeah. But on the on the legal challenges, you know, Smitty, do you have any sense on whether <clears throat> they might actually have a case there? Is it is it possible that the PTB says, okay, well, we won't do anything on this until this is heard, and then this thing's delayed for months? Or, is, or do we have any idea of whether that's a strong argument? I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's a bit of a desperate move by the taxi companies to try and keep these companies out. And there is some legal precedent on it that someone in the ride hailing industry pointed out to me saying that uh, last year there was a, an existing an existing taxi company in Penticton that wanted to sell its license to another taxi company. And that had to be approved by this board. And someone filed a complaint about same thing, labor relations against this taxi company, Yellow Taxi in Penticton, and said this company does not treat its drivers fairly, and we, therefore you should not approve this license transfer. And the board's answer to that was, we're not responsible for labor relations. We're responsible for licensing taxi companies. Go away. We don't want to hear about this. Hmm. If you got a complaint about their uh, their labor relations, go to the labor relations board and deal with it there. And they approve the license transfer. Hmm. So therefore, Uber and Lyft are probably are looking at that precedent and saying, no, 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 you can't, you can't refuse to give us a license just because someone else has filed a labor complaint against us at another board. Hmm. So we'll see. So they argue that they're, that it won't happen. I think the, the potential for caps is one that's maybe a bigger threat now to Uber and Lyft. The other one is this patchwork of municipal licensing that we're seeing mm-hmm. in all across Metro Vancouver. Yeah. All these different cities are bringing in their own fees and systems, which is crazy. I, you know, I don't know why they don't bring in a, just a normal uh, a licensing system for the entire Metro Vancouver region. Well, the NDP kind of um, went half in on that issue, right? Because they took away some of the, the responsibility of municipalities to hold up uh, ride hailing and to yeah. fiddle with the taxi sector. Vancouver being the best, biggest example of councillors who spent their entire careers micromanaging the taxi cartels and the licensing system. But they didn't go far enough to prevent the municipalities from throwing up their own business fees, their own licensing right. regime, kind of drowning this thing in red tape. So uh, yeah. the, the government kind of, I think, missed a an opportunity to, to help this. Well, thing maybe though going. the government secretly wants the ride hailing to fail, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. because these, pa- these taxi companies are so powerful and they're not only got their claws into the provincial government and influencing over them, but also at the municipal level too. So they're very powerful at the municipal level as well. Now suddenly you're seeing, like you said, that all this red tape coming up that could strangle the thing before it even gets off the ground, which the taxi companies would love to see. I mean, mm-hmm. the ta- <laughs> taxi companies are, desperate to keep Uber and Lyft out. And if governments can just sort of prevent them from getting up and running just because of all the bureaucracy and red tape and fees and licenses, that would be fine for them too. Well, they've already successfully managed to keep Uber and Lyft from launching on day one in areas outside of Metro Vancouver. So most uh, listeners, if you're not in the lower mainland, the structure that the government has put in place uh, will mean that you probably can't get an Uber and a Lyft uh, right away. And no. that's just kind of a result of, again, the pressure on the government and the pressure and the rules that they set. I don't know. This is the time of year where you would want to have the ride hailing companies on the road. Right it's now, impossible to, to get parties. And it's stuff. impossible to get a taxi to go to a Christmas party or on the weekend or in the evening. This is when you want them and they're not there. And we have no clue whether they're going to be in place 
like conceivably by the end of the month is the line that you get from the pastor transportation board but that could be right before new year's we we don't know and i i guess uh I guess this mess continues on for at least another we'll few see. weeks. We'll see. I mean, this board says they're still going to make these licensing decisions by the end of this calendar year. So yeah. we'll see what happens. Uh, another issue just to bring up, I don't think we, we paid much attention to it at the time. Uh, there were some other things going on, but it's worth going back and talking a bit about Green Leader Andrew Weaver, yeah. who made an announcement uh, in the last week or two that he's accelerating his departure as the leader of the BC Green Party. And originally, this was something that he was going to do uh, with a bit more um, time in 2020. And the party was going to go off and kind of begin its leadership process. But now, he has said that he will actually step down as leader in January. And there will be some type of interim leader put in place. He will remain as an MLA for the end of his term. So that's probably another couple of years uh, as the, the MLA for Oak Bay Gordon Head. So the Greens will still have three MLAs in the House. He's not quitting. He's just stepping out as leader and then letting that process happen uh, faster than it otherwise would have happened. What do you make of that, Smitty? I think it's an interesting situation here because when Weaver steps down as the leader next month, he's still staying on as an MLA, as you mentioned, but the, the Green Party will then have to appoint an interim leader. And what they have said is the rules are that whoever is going to be the interim leader has to be someone who is not running for the permanent leadership of the party, which is scheduled to be decided in June at a convention in Nanaimo. Now, who will be the interim leader? The name that I've heard come up is possibly Adam Olson, the current Green MLA, because the buzz I've heard is that he is not going to run for the permanent leadership. So maybe he will be the interim leader. When I first heard that, I thought, I'm not sure I believe that because I thought Olson seemed a bit ambitious to me. <laughs> you know, maybe he'd want to be leader. But someone suggested to me this week that he may become the interim leader. Now, the other MLA is Sonia Furstenau. And the buzz on her is that she does want to be the permanent leader and will likely run for the job, in which case she would be disqualified from being the interim leader. Mm. Now, the other interesting part of this is who will she run against? And the name that I've heard come up is Yonina Campbell, hmm. who right now is the deputy leader of the party, even though she doesn't have a seat in the House. Now, Yonina Campbell is a former school trustee in New Westminster, and she used to be the former school board chair there. And she ran for the BC Green Party in New West in the last election and got like 25% of the vote in New Westminster, which is not bad. Now, it's been suggested to me that she might be, this may turn out to be kind of a, a face-off between Sonia Furstenau and Yonina Campbell for the leadership of the Liberal, or the, of the Green Party. Now, here's another interesting thing. If Yonina Campbell wins and she does not have a seat in the legislature, or if anyone else wins this party's leadership, and they're not an existing MLA, would Andrew Weaver step aside, resign his seat to allow the new leader to run in Oak Bay Gordon Head in a by-election? These are all interesting little things I think that we're going to see unfold here in the next few months. And I think it could have a potential timing on a sort of a broader political impact on the timing of another election. Because... Um, 
Let's say John Horgan decides he wants to call an election in 2020. Uh, would he do it in the spring when the Green Party doesn't have a leader? Maybe not. But then does he do it in the fall? But if he's got to call a by-election at the same time, I don't know. It's going to be interesting, this green stuff. Yeah, a lot, yeah. It's kind of flying under the radar, this Green Party stuff. Yeah. But it's kind of, it's, it's going to have an impact on things, I think. I, there's an incredible risk for the Greens if someone either becomes interim leader or party leader who isn't an MLA here in the no. House. And we've seen federally with the NDP and Jagmeet Singh how difficult it is to have a party leader who's not here in the midst of all the politics. You, It's possible, but you lose your ability to get into the, the news cycle, your ability to be part of what's happening in the legislature. You don't have a, as high a profile. Um, and it's tough. And I, I think the Greens are probably thinking about that as well, that you can't you can't just throw somebody into that job uh, and expect them to be as influential as the, the people who are actually elected here as MLAs. So, it, yeah, I, I think uh, either Adam Olson or Sonia Firstno make a lot of sense if they could find some way to say one person wants to be the interim leader and one wants to run and become the actual leader. That would be the best scenario. That's the way the it might work out. And that, that would certainly help them. The problem is that unlike other political parties, there's no safe seat for an outsider to become leader and then just kind of parachute in and get a seat. And even, you know, Jagmeet Singh went to Burnaby and found a way to get into the House of Commons. But the Greens have a difficulty just maintaining the three seats that they have. There's nowhere except, as you mentioned, maybe Andrew Weaver's riding. But remember, that's a riding that's actually liberal uh, and, and in some ways, you know, uh, was a... A testament to Andrew Weaver's, you know, political chops that he knocked off a liberal cabinet minister and took that riding as the very first green MLA. It's not a sure thing to just drop whoever into the Oak Bay Gordon head and they're going to continue the green banner. That's very true. I live in that riding. He's popular there. Because he's a he's and a very good MLA. Yeah. 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 I mean, people like him and he and uh, I remember the the first election he won and it became very evident to me just sort of walking around my neighborhood that he was going to win. Yeah. Um, well, the, the the other question is, what does this mean for the kind of confidence of the NDP government? And that seems to be one of the first things people wonder when they realize Andrew Weaver is leaving his leader. Does this end the NDP agreement well, with the Greens? I and, think that's a great point. And it could emerge as an issue in the Green Party leadership contest. Because what if you have a new leader, a uh, potential new leader comes in and says, look, we haven't been tough enough on this NDP government. They're bringing in LNG like we talked about. They're building the Site C dam. They're doing all these terrible things that we disagree with. We let them get away with it. Maybe we should be tougher. Maybe we should tear up this confidence and supply agreement and yep. force an election, maybe even force an election over it. So I think it's a bit of a wild card, this sort of Green Party situation. Um, and the other interesting thing about Sonia first to know is if she runs for the permanent leadership of the party, which I think she will, and if she's challenged by Yonina Campbell, as I mentioned, this former school trustee in New West, who's the deputy leader of the party right now, could there be an argument that they're better off going with someone, an MLA in Vancouver, or in, at least in Metro Vancouver, to try and broaden the party's appeal outside of uh, Greater Victoria? Mm -hmm. And you could have an argument that First now, although she's been a, a good, solid MLA for the Green Party, does she is her background just sort of too kind of environmental activism, 
Whereas if we want to, if they want to broaden the appeal of the Green Party, do you go with a different leader who doesn't come from kind of a very narrow kind of environmental activist background and is from Metro Vancouver and who is a, looks like a pretty well-connected school board chair there, former school board chair? Would that be a better option for the Green Party to kind of improve their election chances? It, so that's going to be an interesting fight if that's what happens, which there, it might. There are a couple green, you know, former Greens or connected Greens that are on councils in Metro Vancouver and Pete Fry in Vancouver yeah. and Joe Keithley in Burnaby yeah. who, who will give the Greens if they... Could they run? It, well, they'll give the Greens some legitimacy in those areas in the next provincial election. Either, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that they would run as candidates, but they have a feel for the neighborhood, they can endorse someone, they can help the Greens in certain ridings in Vancouver. And the minute that the Greens start contesting Vancouver ridings, they become more, you know, they advance from being a nuisance to the NDP to an actual threat. And it's worth reminding uh, listeners, as we do every time we talk about this subject, as much as the NDP and Greens get along right now, the NDP want to wipe the face of the earth... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they want to wipe the Greens off the face of the earth. There is yeah. no question about that. We saw it in the last federal election, oh, how, yeah. how difficult it is. to Those two parties were just at each other's throats. And we and look, the Greens, if they think that the NDP are not going to try and come for Sonia Furstenow's riding in Cowichan Valley, if they think that the NDP are not going to try and take Adam Olson's seat in Saanich North and the Islands, which is a legitimate three-way race between the three parties, if they think the NDP aren't going to try and actually put someone who has any chops at all in Oak Bay Gordon Head to to take that riding when, with Andrew Weaver leaving, they're insane. They're, yeah. The Greens are, they have to use this leadership race as a way to envision the next two years, which is your best friend is your enemy right now. And, yeah. and how are you going to get out of this little quagmire of being so close to someone who wants to kill you, essentially. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, the, the next leader is a big problem because I don't know what the solution to that is. I don't know how the Greens emerge from this confidence and supply agreement with any ability to protect themselves against what's going to be an NDP onslaught against their riots. Oh, yeah, even though Weaver and Horgan are both talking about, oh, we're good buddies now and stuff, and we go to rugby games together, and, you know, we enjoy hanging out. You know that all bets are off once the election is called, especially when Weaver's out of there mm. and he's not there anymore. So the bromance with Horgan is basically forgotten anyhow, and you got a brand new leader. Weaver did kind of indicate in, in one of his comments that it would have been difficult for him to run in the next election against John Horgan. Because they're buddies? Given the cooperation <laughs> that they've yeah. established now. And that I think I think that's a totally legitimate point. Like The Greens are going to need to transition from working with the NDP over the next yeah. year or so, yeah. develop an attack machine, and find a way to destroy the NDP yeah. in certain ridings, or else well, they are completely and utterly lost in the in what's going to be a, a very vicious election. Oh, race. especially one that's going to be so close. Oh, yeah. Too, right? Like, the NDP want to get a majority in the next election. And the Green Party, you're standing in the way of that, splitting the vote in close ridings. So, yeah, no, uh, the bromance will be over. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a fascinating... <laughs> Big time. That's a thread that we'll keep an eye on. Yes, because it, it is going to be really interesting. It's the future of BC politics right there, yeah. the NDP-Green yeah. relationship and the tight race that's going to be in the next election. So yeah. we'll keep an eye on that. We're going to be back next week to chat with you some more about BC politics. Follow us so you can get the latest episodes. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Uh, make sure you're reading Mike Smith in the province and myself in the sun, and we will be back uh, next week to chat with you then. Talk to you then.